You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. All right. Well, we are excited uh, to have Dominique Gilliard as our guest uh, today. Um, Dominique is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church. He's the author of Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores, which won a 2018 Book of the Year Award for InterVarsity Press and was named Outreach Magazine's 2019 Social Issues Resource of the Year. His latest book is Subversive Witness, Scripture's Call to Leverage Privilege, uh, which was just published by Zondervan. Gilliard also serves as an adjunct professor at North Park Theological Seminary in its School of Restorative Arts and serves on the board of directors for the Christian Community Development Association. In 2015, the Huffington Post named him one of the Black Christian leaders changing the world. I'm glad that you could uh, join us, friends. Welcome to Inverse Podcast. Dominic, this is so great to, to have you with us. Um, last time we were all hanging out in an Inverse space together, we were discussing um, who will be a witness, Dr. Drew's book, mm-hmm. which has just had its one year anniversary. Um, so it's... Uh, uh, appropriate and wonderful that we're now discussing subversive witness as a, a, a bit of a tag team between uh, our, our brothers. Um, w- would you sketch something of uh, your project and um, uh, w- why so many people are excited about it? Yeah, uh, so happy to be with y'all this, well, for me this evening. Um, and <laughs> yeah, when I uh, for the project. So I really wanted to reckon with a couple things. Um, I think in most of our congregations, uh, there is a confusion between confession and repentance. And so I really wanted to call the church back to a biblical-based understanding of repentance, really rooting the conversation in John the Baptist's call in Matthew 3.8, uh, where he says that there should be fruit in keeping with repentance. Um, and so I wanted to really help us see the ways in which our lack of repentance really does conform us to the patterns of this world and really makes us be find contentment in things that our faith causes us calls us to be diametrically opposed to um Mm -hmm. and so i wanted to really name that for what it is and try to help us to envision what it could and should be but then i really wanted to Uh, quit sidestepping this conversation about privilege. Um, So when I, so I'm a past, in my nine to five, I serve as a pastor, two pastors. So basically for our roughly 980 congregations throughout North America, I pastor pastors to help them make connections between Christianity, justice, and racial righteousness. And so um, in those conversations and in the church at large right now, uh, privilege is a conversation that very few churches are 
frankly and soberly dealing with. And so um, I've noticed that there's really three congregational responses. Uh, there is a response that denies privilege and just says that it's not real and it's unbiblical and shuts the conversation down. Uh, there is a response where leadership knows that privilege is really real, but they also think it's a really tricky terrain to navigate. And so instead of losing members and funding, they decide to just sidestep the conversation. And then in the third response, congregations and congregants agree that privilege is real and they really try to reckon with it. But afterwards, uh, their faith is kind of, they feel their faith is frozen by a kind of paralysis and they're not able to really live out a life of faith um, in light of the new revelations they've gleaned about privilege. And that really just took me back to scripture and kind of time of God really wrestling with God, trying to figure out what's a more faithful way. And I started to realize that there is this consistent thread throughout uh, scripture that says that privilege is real. Um, and we always have the option to exploit it for selfish gain. But if we're going to truly be Christ-like in our orientation and lives, then we will kind of model the ethic that's laid for us in Philippians 2, which refuses to exploit privilege for selfish gain, but instead chooses to sacrificially leverage it for the advancement of the kingdom and the love of our neighbors. And so I really wanted to lay that out and to show how consistent that theme is and really to answer a question I think is that the gospel lays bare before us commonly but we usually don't hear it bluntly proclaimed by our pastors which is is the gospel still good news when it costs you something and I think that's what this question about leveraging privilege really calls us to ask ourselves. Um, are we really willing to bear the cost of discipleship? Uh, because to, to live in this manner is costly and it is subversive and it is going to be disruptive to the status quo. And it is going to kind of help usher in the inbreaking kingdom. And so I wanted to give us a paradigm and a kind of blueprint for what this looks like biblically, but then to overlay it with contextual uh, present day applications and ways in which we do and don't do this and what are the results of our lack of willingness to kind of prophetically live into uh, scripture's call to be subversive. So. Mm, so good. So good. Yep. Certainly timely. And I certainly have seen so many congregations fitting into just those categories that you described. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing how, congregations on the ground actually, you know, grapple and, and work through that text together, seeking to actually live it out, right? Not just to read it intellectually, but to live it out. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we love to do, we, like you and your book, you know, so grounded in scripture, we love to dialogue around scripture and we love to ground the whole conversation in scripture. Uh, what, what scripture have you chosen um, that we can um, kind of orient ourselves around as we continue to talk together? So I'm going to read a section of Esther chapter one, um, and we're going to dialogue around the broader book of Esther, but we're really going to focus this part on chapter one. So uh, I'll go ahead and start. Uh, it reads uh, Esther one, verse one. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the 
the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At, the time, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, uh, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When three days were, when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all of the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings of marble pillars. Uh, there were couches of gold and silver on the mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. That's a different word for me, liberality. <laughs> but the king's command, each, got, each guest allowed to drink with no restrictions, but the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of, of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, the king, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, he commanded the seven units who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. The seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom uh, consulted with him. According to the law, we must, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of the King Xerxes that the eunuchs have given to her. Then Memekim replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the people of the province of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she wouldn't come. This very day, the Persian and the Midian women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Midia, which cannot be repleted, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give his her royal decree. Well, also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. 
Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king of the nobles were pleased with his advice, so the king did as Menachem proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in his own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his household using his native tongue. So that's chapter Oof. one. As yeah, a, there we go. As a so foundation we're, for what yeah, we yeah. where are we gonna go tonight? All right, all right, <laughs> all right. We're all we're all anticipating that. Yeah. I can hear the whispers in the background. What's the Alice Wolf quote that resistance is the secret of joy? But we'll, we'll get there, right? We'll get there. Let's let's. Uh, before we spend time uh, with uh, these incredible sisters and uh, their resistance to empire, let's start with your story, Dominique. W would you invite us into um, when do you first remember? encountering the bible yeah so i'm i'm truly one of those children of the church so i i don't remember a time when i didn't know the bible or wasn't in somebody's church um <laughs> my mom is not only a pastor but basically a bishop for our denomination uh and so i've been in the church literally my whole life yeah <laughs> Are there any particular like memories though that stick out? Like, like, you know, when you think back, like, you know, something pops up and you're like, oh yeah, I remember when we used to X, Y, Z. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm uh, like many people, you know, my faith didn't really become my own until much later in life. I mean, I think I, you know, was baptized when I was nine or 10, but even then, I, I don't think my faith really became my own, honestly, until um, right before I went to college. Um, so most of high school, uh, I defined faithfulness as stopping before the rest of my friends stopped doing stuff that we shouldn't be doing. And so that was pretty much I needed to be the first one to say that we needed to pull back. But as long as I was the first one, I felt like I was actually being a good witness. Um, and so, you know, we won't go super, super into it. But like um, three days before my high school graduation, I got into a nearly fatal car accident. Um, and I was on my way to college to go play baseball. I had a baseball scholarship to FAMU and I was going to go live a life for me. Um, and I got into an accident, uh, punctured my lung, uh, knocked my spinal cord out of place, uh, broke my ribs on both sides, my jaws, and the initial diagnosis from the doctor was that I was either going to die or be paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of my life. Um, I got immediately knocked into a coma, um, had to get uh, helicoptered from where I was to the ER. Um, it was this really, yeah, intense accident. Um, I ended up being in the hospital for three months um, in a coma for a week. And yeah, they, they really didn't know if I was going to make it. Um, and it was in that time that I really felt like I met God and my, my faith truly became my own. Um, I was pissed at the world for the first month and a half because I ended up 
I got in the accident because somebody had been drinking and they hit me, um, but they weren't above the drunken level limit, uh, the beer, blood alcohol level. Right, right. And they were going straight and I was turning and they didn't have their lights on, but my light, all of our lights got um, kind of dislodged in the accident. So ultimately they hit me and they were in the wrong, but because they were going straight and I was turning and they weren't above the blood alcohol level, I ended up having to pay for their medical expenses, mm. all of the accident stuff. Mm. And it literally made me physically unable to fulfill my college scholarship. So I felt like everything was being taken away from me and at that point, I felt like due to no fault of my own, really. Um, and so I was I was livid and I was pissed at God. And I just yeah. So the whole first month and a half, I was like the Grinch up in the in the hospital. I was just pissed at the world. Um, and then all of the doctors and all the nurses kept coming in and was just saying, you know, you should you really don't understand what a miracle you are. Like you literally should be dead according to science. Like there's, you should not have survived this. And I think after hearing that from like almost everybody who came in would stop and say that to me, um, it started to permeate after like a, year, a month and a half. And then I remember specifically, I called my mom and I said, mom, I'm sorry I've been a jerk over the last month and a half could you do me a favor and could you bring me my Bible? And really for the next month and a half, I just stayed in the word. And I was like, God, if science says I'm supposed to be dead, everybody around me says I'm supposed to be dead. Clearly you saved my life and intervened for a purpose. So would you reveal to me what that purpose is? Um, and, you know, it was a, a deep time of sober internal reflection. And I had to realize that there were things in my life and people in my life and vices that were keeping me from really living on mission like I was supposed to be doing and I had to clean up some of that stuff so that I could be faithfully and appropriately used by God in the way that I was supposed to be doing and so that really been ended up being the pivotal moment for me and my faith um because if it were not for that I would not be here with y'all tonight talking about this I'd been on a completely different track so Wow, Dominic. Yeah. So I'm really interested in, like, we always ask our guests whether, you know, they encountered the Bible as liberating or oppressive, healing or harming. And I'm curious, like, for you, both uh, pre-accident, during accident, and then after, like, how would you describe, you know, your encounters with, with the Bible as it relates to liberating oppressive something else uh what, what kind of language would you give to describing um the role that was having for you and for the world yeah so um my father used to work for the southern christian leadership conference the SELC, uh, organization dr king founded during the civil rights movement and because of that we used to have civil rights leaders and heroes and sheroes at our dinner table all the time. And so, and growing up in Metro Atlanta in the shadows of Dr. King, like the gospel was extremely liberatory um, and liberating. Like I, I didn't have an understanding of the good news without kind of the liberating reality of uh, 
God's heart for justice and the church is called to pursue it. Um, that said, um, the older I got, the more I started to experience the gospel being weaponized in ways that were violent and oppressive and um, captive to imperial logics and uh, kind of doing some of the the, the, the craziness we saw in Esther. Um, I saw the Bible used in those ways. Um, and that was really, as I went more into like multi-ethnic churches or into more white congregational spaces. Um, and so, yeah, and I think for me, a lot of my mission uh, has been trying to speak back into all ecclesial spaces to help us to realize while we might not be guilty of weaponizing scripture in this way, we might also be complicit in this way. Um, and so like, what does it mean for us to really reckon with our cultural baggage, our blind spots and all of these things that ultimately end up distorting uh, the gospel from a liberating good news for all people to something that is perceived as good news for some or uh, endorser of the status quo or all of these other kind of realities that we'll continue to unpack tonight. Dominic, if you were to um, uh, name ways of reading, and I guess in uh, a very real sense, your, your new book project, um, uh, sketches a hermeneutic sketches a, a way of reading scripture that is incredibly helpful um, but for those who are listening and uh, are wanting to read the scriptures in ways that are liberating but uh, maybe their journey happened in the opposite direction of your own they discovered uh, uh, liberative traditions um, after experiencing uh, traditions that actually um, sound much more like uh, the um, uh, patriarchal rulers in this text than they do um, Vashti and her friends. Um, what kind of um, uh, gift would you offer others out of your own experience for reading the Bible in ways that do turn our world upside down? Yeah, I would say um, we have to learn to wrestle with texts where the good news doesn't feel readily apparent. Um, and there, there are a number of texts where that is true. And I think uh, a lot of ecclesial traditions or individuals who disciple folk really disciple you to kind of avoid those texts or to just kind of brush over them. But I think we need to learn to wrestle with difficult texts until we, uh, Reverend Will Gaffney talks about wrestling them until you wrestle the blessing out of it. And, um, you know, we might, walk away limping because of the wrestling, but um, we'll come away with a more holistic understanding of the good news of the gospel yeah. of Jesus Christ. And so that would be one thing that I would really say. Um, I, we have to be willing to, to look at our own blind spots um, and do the work of seeing the, the blind spots of folks who discipled us too. Um, I think sometimes you know, when we're discipled into the faith, we're so trusting about trusting of the people who brought us into the family of God that we can't soberly look at their lives and some of their blind spots and see the ways that that might be uh, replicated in our own lives. Um, hmm. 
I think we have to, um, the other thing I would say is, is it's essential to establish relationships of accountability to people who are different than you. Um, because I think that's really how you start to get exposure for your blind spots. And particularly in light of what I talk about in this book, you know, people who don't enjoy the same privileges that you do, um, people whose lives are very different. So for me as a male, it's been critical for me to be intentional about being discipled by women. So I can start mm. to see some of the blind spots that my male privilege kind of engenders in my reading, teaching, interpretation, uh, preaching of the gospel. Um, I need to be, um, another thing that's been super transformative for me is uh, being in the word of God with my incarcerated sisters and brothers um, and allowing them to help me see all of the ways in which my my freedoms as somebody who's not incarcerated really make me translate the scriptures in a way that it doesn't feel tangible on the ground for all people and i need to i need to be reminded of that um my first pastoral call was out uh, to West Oakland, California, um, my first congregational call. And we used to ask, our church used to meet in um, Defermery Park, which was one of the first places that the Black Panthers would uh, gather and mobilize from in Oakland. And, you know, we would have folks from doctors and lawyers to folk who was out there prostituting who would come to church on Sunday and trying to preach the good news to that diverse of a congregation was extremely challenging. It was something that really held me accountable to uh, being able to, to check some of my blind spots and to see the ways in which um, the gospel wasn't landing as good news for all people all of the time. And so mm -hmm. I would say, um, Proximity to people who are different, um, being accountable to those who suffer in ways that we don't suffer, um, and being sober enough to, to see what privileges you have and have folks who can speak truth, who, who you trust, who can speak truth into your life and help you, help hold you accountable. Unlike what we saw in the biblical passage where Xerxes surrounded himself with yes men who were never mm -hmm. going to tell him anything that he needed to hear, um, but to be accountable to prophetic folk who are willing to speak hard truths into your life and you trust them enough to heed their wisdom when they say it to you. So those would be some of the things. And I would also just say, just in general, I talked about women, period, but particularly um, finding ways to submit ourselves to the leadership of women of color. Um, yeah. Because of the uniqueness of their lived experience and the, the multiple layers of oppression that they have to try to navigate um, in this life. They have a very crystallized, vision of a lot of the problems that keep us captive or that we are blinded to. And so we need to be very intentional about uh, submitting ourselves to their voice and their leadership. Dominique, that was not one good answer. That was several. That that was gold, mate. That that was that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was really good. And so much, I mean, number one, you made me think, I was like, because in not this Sunday, but the next Sunday I'm preaching and 
my church kind of is kind of like what you described. Like we have mm. college educated folks and folks who don't have, you know, who never got their high school degree, right? Um, folks who are addicts or uh, returning citizens from prison, as well as, you know, me, PhD, right? Um, and how to preach in ways that are both faithful, prophetic, empowering, for that whole community, right, um, is always a yeah. task, and I always feel like I'm picking and choosing. Well, this time, I don't know, it's a little tricky, but um, but I also really, I, it definitely came to mind. I mean, a lot of things came to mind, almost every because you had multiple really good points, as Jared mentioned. But I also was thinking about, um, as you were talking about wrestling with scripture, and I was thinking about um, the way in which. Like I've kind of moved through different kind of theological education spaces that kind of mm. offer different gifts. We'll call it that, right? Um, some would say different schools, but uh, well, I'll call it two different gifts um, that sometimes feel in clash, like in terms of like, I think about my MDiv program was a lot about like formation, right? They, they really mm. cared about formation and ministerial practice and contextual ministry in the neighborhood kind of stuff. And so everything, including how we read scripture, was kind of oriented around that. Um, and in one way, it was uh, it's a gift. In the other way, um, in some ways, maybe shied away from really wrestling with some of the harder, harder texts, right? Um, and then uh, I think about like my undergrad experience, and then certainly got my PhD. Um, we're uh, much more heavier emphasis on like critical biblical studies, right? Um, and really gifted in that, um, but then not necessarily, but in some ways I've, I've sometimes felt like as much as that was a gift, it was, there's a way in which like, Mm -hmm. Sad, sometimes i almost feel like i can almost dismiss <laughs> texts then yeah. right at times yeah. almost too yeah. quickly um and it's kind of like when when you marry the two together a little bit right where you're not afraid to ask any question of the text to yeah. to raise all the problems and say this has functioned as a text of terror yeah. and i'm not running away from it yet right yeah. Yeah. um and i think that there's something really powerful about kind of trying to and sometimes I do that well, and sometimes I don't. Um, but I, I always recognize that I've kind of been formed both maybe at that intersection and also pulling away from it. Like mm. I have these two ways that I've been formed that pull me away from that and also towards it. Um, so I think it's really helpful, I think. And obviously most people don't necessarily have to think about it in terms of where we go to school, but just our own inclinations, right? Of what, what do we do when we come to these hard texts? Um, and I think that that's some good, good, good advice there. Yeah. And I would also say one thing that's unique about me as a theologian is I'm also a historian. And so my first graduate degree is actually in U.S. history uh, yeah. with the focus on race, gender and class. And so that brings a different lens to how I engage the yeah. text and the questions yeah. I ask of the text. And I think one of the ways in particular that informs my engagement with scripture is I don't, because I know that history is written by the victors. That's right. I'm constantly looking in scripture about who's not given voice, uh, like who's mentioned, but who's not given voice. And what does it mean for people who identify as those folk in scripture who aren't given voice? And uh, what do we do with the fact that so many of those stories aren't 
tied up with a nice neat bow and like how do we reckon with that reality um in real ways and how do we really grapple with the power dynamics that are at play within so many of these texts and so i think those are two things that kind of that background kind of brings to my hermeneutic and my mm. engagement in scripture as well and dominic one of the things i really appreciate about um the way that uh you have taken uh even privilege is um, you've subverted a lot of the ways that like there's a subversive witness to how you're talking about privilege and mm. um, uh, you've contextualized it in such ways that uh, I think are accessible for many um, in, instead of um, immediately like off-putting but it has an analysis which is far deeper than the current conversation um, which is incredibly helpful. Um, as, as we look at this particular text that, that you have chosen, uh, would you walk us around a, a little bit how um, uh, the, the power dynamics, um, the uh, realities of the characters, uh, those who are named, those who are not, and um, what this text might um, uh, do for our imaginations to uh, turn all this upside down? Yeah, yeah. So when we get into the text, you know, Xerxes is a flamboyant king who is just trying to like display like that he's the man and so mm -hmm. he like throws this bash like he makes you know Lollapalooza and all this other stuff look like small <laughs> like, like little tiny things like a 180 day bash and then he decides I ain't finished yet I want to throw an after party for a select few group of folks and you know they just said the, the liquor's flowing there's no limits it's there's like no accountability, like folk are just getting completely wasted. And so at the end of 187 days of getting completely wasted, he's pulled out all of his tricks to display his majesty and his might and his bravado and all this stuff. And then he's like, oh, but there's one more. Let me bring out one of the most beautiful ladies in the land and show everybody Show, show her body off to all my boys to let them see how bad I am. Mm -hmm. And so because of the power dynamic, I mean, Vashti really, you know, within the confines of the patriarchy she finds herself in, she either complies and subjects herself to sexual trauma and abuse, or she resists. And ultimately, that's what she does, thankfully. Um, but resistance in that kind of a context is always going to have a very stiff penalty mm -hmm. um and xerxes is embarrassed he's trying to save face that you know this woman who's supposed to come at his beck and call is telling him that she's not and she doesn't just do it quietly she does it in front of all of his boys and he's already inebriated um and so he he swiftly tries to punish her and punish her in a way that um, there is no mistake to anybody throughout the land to make sure that you don't try to cross him in this way. Um, and so he brings his little good old boys together and say, how, how do we punish her and punish her well uh, as a public service announcement to anybody else who tries to cross me? Um, and we see the toxicity of... Um, 
the patriarchy expounded um, and then ultimately institutionalized into law. Um, and they get so specific. They, they say, you know, we want to write this in everybody's native tongue. So like there is no mistake about right. this. Um, and, you know, it's this it's this beautiful story of resistance but it is one of those stories where i think we we haven't adequately wrestled with the text in the fact that you know what do we do with the vashtis of the world who stand up for themselves and they are swiftly disciplined by empire uh for their resistance for their affirmation of their their personhood and dignity um scripture doesn't come back and give us any you know anything good to land on with Vashti or to feel good about in regards to that. Um, so for folks who see themselves as Vashti in the text, like what is our pastoral word for them? Um, and so I think there's still more reckoning to do with texts like that, that like just leave us hanging and folks who see themselves in that character. Um, but I think one of the ways that we can at least start to try to reckon with it more faithfully is that when we talk about Esther and her queendom and her reign, we start to reckon with the fact that there is an Esther because of the protest of Vashti. That's right. Um, and when I've been taught about Esther my whole life, like I, I didn't even know who Queen Vashti was until like my third year in seminary. Um, and, I mean, but I've heard Esther preached and taught my All whole time, life. Right? Uh -huh. And it's just like, we it's just time jumped. this. Yeah, yes. we just jump over like right. there was not even a Vashti um, as yep. part of the, the story. And the, Dominic, I think, I, I would, I'd love to actually name it. Why do you think the fascination with Esther and the silence on Vashti? Well, yeah. So, I mean, part of it is. I think part of it is most pastors don't know what to do with it. And so right. things mm. that we don't know what to do with, we just we sidestep them um, and we just get and we brush over it to the good news and i think a lot of us don't think that our our people desire or are capable of holding the weight of some of the difficult stuff scripture brings to bear mm -hmm. and so i don't think that folks believe that our congregations are ready to sit with a story of a, a leader being this toxic and this abusive and yeah. ultimately somebody who's just trying to affirm their dignity gets expelled in this way and we we don't have any good news to leave folks with about that um but that's that's life i mean who which one mm -hmm. of us don't know a person who's been swiftly reprimanded by empire and been used as a public service announcement to say that anybody else who has the audacity to resist in this way will be swiftly punished in the same manner like that's part of the imperial power that we're trying to subvert, that we're trying to resist. Um, and I think when we don't name that, we soften um, the concept and the, the powers and the principalities that are, are at play within imp imperial logics. And I think that's part of the reason why the church has slowly but surely been more so of a affirmer of the status quo as opposed mm -hmm. to a subverter of it, because we don't want to talk about uh, these as foundational logics of empire. Um, empire has to make people pun pay 
when they try to subvert it and they have to do it publicly so that other people feel intimidated um, and feel coerced into compliance. And so I think our inability to really reckon with empire theologically um, is a big reason why we skip over Vashti uh, to get to Esther. Um, Yeah, I remember when I, um, so back when I was a youth pastor in Philly and I can't remember exactly how the conversation came up, but I had, so two of my um, like team members, right? Who were working with the young people then, one, a woman of color, and the other was a man of color, right? And I don't remember how it came up, but they are arguing all of a sudden about Esther um, mm. and how to interpret Vashti. Um, and, and my friend, I won't say names because who knows who's listening at any point. But, um, <laughs> but my, my friend, um, she says, you know, oh, Vashti's right. Good for her, right? And, and then my, the other guy basically responds like, no, 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 like, you know, um, she was, she's not, you know, living into how, she's not respecting, you know, her man or something, I don't know, something, something ridiculous, wow. right? And, and, and what I realized from that moment, what became so clear is like how easy it was for him to identify with the wrong person, mm-hmm. so to speak, and right? And that that was actually shaping his hermeneutics uh, was that he didn't see this, uh, his, his patriarchy was so deep that he didn't see this as a disease deformed and mangled scenario being played out. Um, he actually thought it was supposed to be affirming it mm-hmm. rather than yeah. undermining, you know, uh, and I think that that maybe also, right, in what ways do pastors just so patriarchal that they can't even see that there's something problematic in the text at all. Like, so yeah, there might yeah. be some that want to avoid it. And there's some that can't even see that there's a problem um, because they just, it fits too <laughs> parallel with their own lives, right? Just sliding in with that, that scenario. I think or, or the problem way. is that, oh, sorry, Dominic. You no, go, go for it, go. go for it, go for it. I was just going to say, or, or the problem is that they got drunk. <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> can we talk about yeah. everything else that's present in the text? Like right, what, right. how, what? Yeah, and I think, I think it, dovetails with the broader problem like you know when we talk about like slavery in our in our nation and we talk about uh Mm. slave revolts like Mm. people demonize folks who are lead slave revolts right um because there is this belief like well the law said the slavery was okay so even though this is unethical and immoral like they actually were the ones in the right. And it was these people who were actually fighting for their freedom who were actually the ones who were wrong. And so in this institution, it's like Xerxes is the king. He, this was the, the status quo for him to be able to commission his wife and you know she come in his beck and call. And so I think there is this way in which our inability to reckon with texts like this really bless power in a blind way. And we ultimately end up, again, being affirmers and supporters of the status quo, as opposed to people who are actually critically looking at the ways in which the status quo is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Mm. we end up on the wrong side of the story in the biblical text, in history, in our present moment, because we are conditioned to just give this blind allegiance and support to the one we perceive as being in a position of power. Right. Yeah. 
so yeah, I, all of that um, goes on, and then we get the emergence of uh, you know this this toxic law goes out, um, and women throughout the provinces are subjected to patriarchy in legal form now it was just in cust uh, custom and practice before but now it's legal um, because of this edict that goes out because of this um, we we never hear from Vashti again um, and then Esther gets on the scene and I think some ways like we've not even some ways we've even done a disservice to Esther um, yeah. we haven't really reckoned with the realities of what Esther is carrying. So Esther, ultimately, she's an orphan. Uh, both of her parents die. She ultimately has to be raised by her uncle Mordecai. Um, and then uh, Xerxes, with his good old boys again, is trying to figure out, like, okay, now Vashti's out the picture. What do I do? I need another queen. How do I find another woman? Um, and we've been taught that he throws a beauty pageant. Right. Um, but really what he does is that he commissions his people to go out to all the provinces throughout the land and round up all of the attractive young virgins throughout the land, bring them to back to the palace. He pampers them up, treats them super nice before he sexually violates them. And the woman that ultimately satisfies him the most is the one that he dons as the new queen. So you got Esther, who's basically like a teenager who's trying to figure out, you know, the trauma of losing both of her parents, who ultimately goes to the palace, and she is a Jew who has to act as if she's a Persian, so, so, she, so that she can pass and be accepted into the pageant itself. Then she's sexually violated by the the king or at least coerced into action um by the king and then she gets picked and then her uncle tells her that she has to continue to suppress her ethnic identity and she has to culturally pass so that she can be able to blend into the palace and so i think we've talked about esther as like she's just this nice neat compliant uh submissive um but she's somebody who's trying to navigate trauma um and she's trying to navigate the reality of sexual violence at a young age in a coercive situation where she has no power to resist or even to assert her full personhood and later on in the story when she finally starts to do stuff we see this even plushed out even more because the text tells us that she couldn't even go see Xerxes without being commissioned by him like you talk about like a toxic patriarchal situation that's set up um and so um yeah in the story i think uh, i'll just go a little bit more into some of the the context of the story but i think what i think is crazy is in the story of esther you know, because of her trying to grapple with her own trauma, trying to navigate the complexities of a sexual, uh, being a survivor, essentially, um, she, she, she kind of zones out, I think. And then she also kind of starts to get used to life on the good side in the palace. And I think because of those two realities, she really starts to lose connection with her people and particularly the pain of her people to the point that there is this genocide that's commissioned for all of her people and she's completely oblivious to it um and, and until her uncle comes to the gates and he is at the gates uh wailing 
and weeping and sackcloth and ashes. And when she sees him, her first response really is an imperial response of trying to silence his lament um, and to repackage it in a more palatable way. Um, now, I think that that comes from her. It comes from a good place and good intentions. But this is one of the ways that I think this church has really failed. Uh, we have failed to name that good intentions are not more important than the impact of our actions. Um, and her actions were actions that further the logic and the impulse of empire, um, and that we're going to continue to suppress the liberation that the spirit was trying to induce. And so she, she tries to silence his protest, or at least repackage it. He persists. And then ultimately, only after he persists, does she actually go and actually seek out what is actually causing evoking this type of lament in him and you know I take a pause in the book to talk about that this is something that we see within the church far too often today uh, this is the same thing we see when folks are out in the streets uh, protesting in association with BLM this is what we saw when uh, Me Too emerged this is what we saw when Me Too turned into Church Too um, our first impulse, the imperial impulse that is alive and well within the church is to suppress and to try to silence suffering, or at least to force people to repackage it in a way that feels more palatable to us. Mm -hmm. um, and then and only then do we usually go and try to actually seek out the source of what's inspiring and evoking the lament and the resistance and the protest. And that's just Again, it's a logic and it's a way of responding to suffering and pain and hurt in the world that is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are straight out of the imperial playbook. Um, and we have to start to reckon with the ways in which we are complicit with that and the ways in which our theology and even our interpretation of scripture emboldens this kind of response from the church to people who suffer. You know, I've been saying, um, in fact, I've been saying, especially to my students, um, especially, I mean, not this semester, I've been joking that I have mostly majority students of color in the classroom, so I've been celebrating this, but, um, <laughs> but most semesters, you know, a lot more white evangelical students, one of the things when I'm having conversations with them around race is, is how important um, their ability to receive Black anger is. And, and that that is a gift, right? I've been framing it that Black anger is their gift, that they need to be able to understand the weight and the severity of what has gone on, the harm that has gone on, and they can't fully understand it unless they receive Black anger. Um, if they try to domesticate it, if they try to repackage it, if they mm -hmm. refuse to reject it, right? In some ways, they're missing their own gift. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so I do think that your points around this repackaging that the church loves, especially the mainstream church, right? Um, that I think that those kind of imperial impulses are dangerous, but it's dangerous not only in terms of squelching those voices, but it's our own transformation also that's at risk when we do so. And we see that in Esther, and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll let you jump in, Jared, too, but we that's the exact thing we see in Esther. Yeah, Dominic, I, I keep thinking of... Um... Uh, that quote from Bell Hooks where she talks about how um, shame is one of the um, uh, most effective tools that, and, you know, Bell Hooks' way of summing up um, 
uh, you know, like the the fall, the all that that's wrong um, with reality that doesn't look like love. What's her list? The the imperial white supremacist um, capitalist patriarchy. Um, but uh, shame is one of the most effective tools of um, that system uh, uh, because it produces trauma and trauma often produces paralysis. And I, I really appreciate that you took the time uh, to actually name uh, the trauma that's at the start of that story and um, the complexities of, you know, that Alice Walker bit around um, resistance. Like when we consider <laughs> what's the Jesus option in this book of Esther, uh, I think it's Vashti, right? Um, yeah. But it comes at the cross cost of her crucifixion, um, uh, at least socially, at least in, in the narrative of the story. And um, the complexities of why we identify with Esther's or Joseph's and um, those who become close um, to uh, the courts of power, welcomed into the courts of power and seek to do good. I wonder if sometimes uh, our churches so fixate on those narratives is because we don't like the Jesus option, which leaves us outside the city on a hill. Instead, yeah. we want to be inside in the courts of power and hoping to bring a little bit of chaplaincy. So they do the <laughs> imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy in a way that's a little bit more godly. Um, and it's it's those dynamics that I so appreciate you actually bringing out and humanizing uh, uh, the complexities of uh, the people's wrestling with these realities as we wrestle today. What is it to be faithful to a subversive witness right now today um, with our locations uh, in these uh, matrix of, of power that we exist in? Yeah, and I appreciate you naming that because it points to another thing that I really try to emphasize in this chapter is the, the role that imperial satiation plays and mm. the way in which the empire will give us trinkets for complying with its ethos. Um, yep. And we, we, we are conditioned to understand that when we play the game of empire, we will get rewarded for playing along. Um, <laughs> even when we know that playing along comes at the expense of our neighbors, uh, we learn to slowly but surely dullen that piece of ourselves. Uh, yeah. And we look at everybody else who's playing along and we don't feel so bad about it. Mm -hmm. um, Dom, are, are you, are you been watching me at work? No, <laughs> you know, I always feel, you know, I always, I, I take my confessional time I'm always feeling like I'm being lulled you know what I mean and I always have to like kind of like smack myself around and like wake myself up again um because it's so easy and yeah. it's so powerful and and you do know that there are consequences and and while everyone maybe be willing to take like some consequences like how much right how much yeah. am I really and so there's this just draw in to just kind of comply and to go along with the system at times and have to continually just push myself out of that kind of lure yeah mm. push yourself and you also got friends like jared who will push you too and that's right. the that's the right. big thing that i was talking about with xerxes like yeah that's the problem when you don't have somebody else right. that someone's gonna who's speak going to life. prophetically speak into your life the yeah. the the small compromises that you make for empire slowly but surely turn into a complete sellout to the yeah, point that right. you you forget right. who who you are and whose you are and you and you live for the flourishing of the empire because your 
your peace, prosperity, and abundant life is tied to its peace, prosperity, and abundant mm-hmm. life and its That's flourishing. Right. And, right. and we start to see some of that in Esther. And again, I want to say that, again, this is informed, I believe, by her trauma. But she gets so disconnected and so immersed within the lavishness of the empire that she is completely disconnected from the pain of her people. Yeah. To the point that she like is completely oblivious to the fact that there is a pending genocide mm-hmm. going on for all of her folks. And Mordecai in his unrelenting lament helps her to come back to reality and to realize that her fate is ultimately tied to the fate of her people and that while she might fool herself or delude herself into thinking that because she's the queen she's gonna get some kind of special exemption we already saw what Xerxes did to his first queens I don't think Mm -hmm. that's gonna happen but (laughs) but she can start to delude herself into thinking that she ultimately will get some kind of special exemption and Mordecai has just has to prophetically speak into her life and say don't think just because you're the queen that you you're gonna have a different fate than the rest of us like and and that that is that reawakening moment for her and I think there 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 are these reawakening moments particularly for BIPOC believers who find ourselves moving out of our disenfranchised marginalized communities into these places of power and prestige and privilege where we can slowly but surely lose ourselves and think that success is distancing ourselves from the pain of our people Mm. and creating geographic buffers between us and their oppressed reality and i we see that in this story i also unpack this in moses's story this is a this is a thing and this is one of the ways that bipoc folk have to really wrestle with privilege if there is one misconception about this book is that i wrote this book for white people and I did mm. not. Um, this book, <laughs> this book, I tried to really have an ex- expansive engagement with privilege so that it was something that all of us really had to reckon with. And I really wanted to hone in on this reality that I've seen in my life and so many other BIPOC leaders' lives who have, uh, you know, elevated themselves into these places of prestige and influence and where we can really start to define success as separation from the pain of our people and slowly but surely the further we get away then the cries of our own people become white noise to us and we have to have a Mordecai or somebody in our life who can prophetically remind us that our fate is still connected inherently to our people's fate amen amen Yeah, that's a word. That's a word there. That's a word there. And, and like I said, um, you know, I try to always speak confessionally, like, even as someone who like intentionally like decided when I moved back to Harrisburg, like I'm going to live in the community and I'm going to do X, you know, like it's still like most people would be like, oh no, Drew's got this. He's he's fine. No, but it's powerful, right? These forces Mm -hmm. are powerful that want to pull you. And so um, I do think that this, these are kind of conversations that need to be had in all of our communities. Um, this is not just white people's problems, right? Um, and Especially as men of color, too. 
Yeah. Like, I think right. we can opt out of the conversation of privilege by just focusing it on whiteness, but that right. never means we have to reckon with patriarchy and patriarchy. our complicity yep. and participation in it. And, and class as well. Yeah, classism, and, yep. able-bodiedness, and, you know, and mental yep. cognition, yep. all yep. of these different ways that I try yep. to bring privilege to bear in this book. And that's yep. one of the real dangers of opting out and saying, we don't have to reckon with this. This is a white people's problem. Like, Privilege is much more expansive than that. So much more. Yeah. I mean, I always, the example I give in class is, you know, yes, I've had a gun pointed to my head by cops. And yes, also I have a PhD in certain spaces, like the room is all on me. Right. Um, And like both of those things are true. And I have to kind of reckon with the multidimensional realities of that um, and how I can navigate spaces. And it's not always the same in every space. And we just need to be able to be honest about it. I think sometimes we can use some forms of oppression as an excuse for why we don't need to right do the, the other work. And it's just not really, it's not doing the kind of honest self-examination of our own lives in the way that we navigate um, these social structures. Yeah. Mm. Which is how whiteness works. Like the the whole thing about white fragility, it's it's fragile because it's a lie. And uh, those those ways of um, uh, like hardship in in, um, one analysis, therefore disqualifying um, that lie maintains itself by denying those other realities. And so what it is to I- embrace each other and, and actually enter into that this isn't merely your pain, this is our pain uh, because yeah. we're community and I have a new identity and I've been submerged in this new identity and, and seeking to live out of that means that um, we get uh, free from uh, both the lies, but it means entering into um, that shared pain. So no one finds himself alone without a Mordecai in those centres, in their trauma um, and the shame that results. In, because how much must... Vashti um, feature in the imagination of Esther in that story, like to to actually enter in that and go, this is the consequences. um, If I actually remember who I am um, and and not play along, not show up to, you know, the prayer breakfast, uh, not be there for the photo op, not be enticed uh, by the the meeting uh, with the politicians and the powerful and, and forget those whom, uh, I'm uh, called to uh, learn from, serve, and um, uh, do community with uh, day in, day out. That's their temptations that are open for all of us. And I think the other temptation is that we we want to romanticize at least one person in scripture and, or in the passage. And so I want to yeah. muddy the waters by saying, like, as much as we need a Mordecai, Mordecai was complicit in the beginning Mm -hmm. by telling her to hide her ethnic identity and again he did it in good intentions but then when she starts to slowly but surely lose herself and he comes back with a prophetic word he also got to reckon with the fact that he played a role in her ability to kind of drift off in that way and so i think there is this real desire for us to romanticize we got to have that one spotless hero or shero in the text Mm -hmm. there's just something about the way that we're formed in this country like we feel like we need that and so i think that makes us do things like we preach sermons about david as a man after god's own heart but we don't reckon with the fact that david raped Bathsheba like we don't want to and we don't want to reckon with the fact that even though david danced his heart out and repented 
he still didn't go back and do the work that he needed to do to mm -hmm. teach his son not to follow in his toxic ways and therefore That's we get right. the rape with Tamar. And so like we don't we don't really like to grapple with characters in a way that we actually don't leave anybody spotless. And I think that's part of our hermeneutic blind spot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that that um good guys, bad guys thing runs so deep, doesn't it? Like it, it's all the myths that um Dominique, I'm confessing that with with my 11 year old and 13 year old, they're they're fascinated with what if the the Marvel series, and I think about it every time we're watching that like this is a this is a story that leaves out those complexities or like the good guys and the bad guys that operate in the same way. It's just the soundtrack in the background that lets you know who's who, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so yeah. We'll, we'll, what it is to be formed in complex stories like these biblical narratives are um that's that's a challenge like the complex lives that we lead that we actually <laughs> live, right? it looks like us <laughs> and i think if we could reckon with the fact that these biblical characters actually are a lot more like us then a lot more of us could actually see ourselves as worthy as being called and yeah, and people wow. who actually are God would choose to use to work in and through. I think so many of us think we're so damaged, so dirty, so unworthy that we don't even see ourselves as people that God desires to work in and through. But I think if we muddy the water of some of these biblical characters in the way the scripture does for us, but we just don't choose to enter in, I think that we could actually start to check some of that problem and we could see ourselves as actually being um, vessels of transformation and uh, agents of liberation in the way that scripture really commissions us to be but we have to have that belief and i believe our our sin our shame our brokenness our trauma all that stuff can keep us from from he believing that about ourselves and heeding the call of god upon our lives and again mm. i spent a lot of time in the moses chapter talking about how i really believe that that was true in moses's life and that's why it took him so long to actually be open to the fact that he in all of his imperfections with his speech limitations with his background of having murdered somebody with him having to deal with the complexities of being a hebrew raised in pharaoh's house where he was yeah. uh told his whole life that he comes from a uh, inferior people like all these things like these are real struggles and challenges that we have to under overcome today as we try to see ourselves as people that god would choose to work in and through and these are real things and i think when we don't take these real things to the biblical text and actually see ourselves in the text it starts to limit our ability to be used by god mm. that's good that's, that's a good. word yeah i got plans already I, I have a course that i'm thinking about that gave me a little bit of hard time last semester and i think that this text might be a good starter just to orient them so that we can have a, a, a better conversation so i'm already i already got plans for subversive witness nice uh, so thank you for your good work and um yeah this is good this is yeah really good. well let me close this story uh yeah, so we can uh so um Mordecai calls Esther to remember who who she is and uh, that her privilege has a missional purpose, that her privilege isn't for her to just lavish in the palace and to, to, to pass as Persian and not have to deal with the same realities that the rest of her people have to deal with, but God is actually 
put her in this place to actually to change the fate of her people. And that means that she has to put all of this privilege and power and prestige on the line because she has to do some unconventional things, some things that will disrupt the status quo, some things that were not allowed in this patriarchal context. And so uh, she has to go and approach the king without being summoned by the king. Um, and then she has to use her wit, her intellect, her beauty, her cunning, all of these things um, to ultimately help the king to to grapple with the fact that he has commissioned a genocide for a people that his wife belongs to. Um, and that if he continues to blindly go along with Haman, like her seal, her, her fate is sealed. And so I, I love the first thing that she does when she finally gets the courage to act is that she gathers people and she calls them to pray and fast. And I think that that's so important because I think when we do this work of justice and we do this work of resistance, a lot of times we try to do this work in isolation or we try to do it in our own strength and we don't stop to pray and fast. And I think that there's, there, I know that there is a spiritual element to trying to resist the powers and the principalities. And when we don't engage this, this fight on the spiritual level and the physical level, we are going to find ourselves inadequate or we're going to find ourselves burnt out and i love the first thing that she does is summon her people and ask them to pray and fast mm -hmm. and that is really part of what actually gives her the gumption to follow through with her convictions and mm -hmm. to follow the spirit the spirit's prompting to actually go and have the conversation the prophet and speak prophetic truth into the king's life um so she ultimately does and in doing so we have to consider everything that she risks and puts on the line because she really could have, you know, continued to try to pass and roll the dice and see if mm -hmm. Xerxes just would love her enough to give her, give her an exception. But um, in this story, I think it is a, a reminder that we're always, when we're in a position of privilege that the rest of our peers and our people don't experience, we're always gonna be seduced into believing that we're gonna be the exception that we can continue to pass and live high on the hog while the rest of our folk ultimately might be doomed for a fatal reality. And sometimes we can be like, well, that's their fault. And we can, we can find all these ways to distance ourselves and separate ourselves from it. But it's always going to be a temptation when we're the person who has been able to rise up to see ourselves as categorically different from or disconnected from the fate of. And that's one of the, the tools that, of empire. And I believe that's really one of the ways in which Satan uses privilege for his missional purpose mm. we always talk about the missional purpose of the church but we don't talk about the missional purpose of satan and that's the, <laughs> that's that's the kill it's the kill steal and destroy our witness and right. when we live in a way that we see ourselves as categorically different and disconnected from our people that's what satan is doing he is mm. he is killed stolen and destroyed our witness in the world and we no longer are valid in our communities and folk who yep. start to see that we have separated ourselves in that way they also don't see us as a credible witness and so that's what we go back to drew's book who will be a witness like that's the real question now. when we're in positions of privilege like are we willing to see ourselves as connected to the pain of our people and are we willing to 
subversively live and love in a way that bears witness to that? Or are we only interested in our own self-preservation, which oftentimes means turning a blind eye to the suffering of our people or seeing mm. ourselves as di disconnected from their fate? So um, yeah. she finally doesn't do that. Uh, she prophetically does what she has to do, puts a lot on the line. And we, I think in doing so, instead of just congratulating her, we also need to just tangibly count the cost of what her discipleship could have cost, even though it didn't mm -hmm. go out that way, because sometimes it does play out that way. And if we are, if we start to fool ourselves into thinking every time we try to walk on water, we're going to do it successfully, we're also setting ourselves up for the okie doke. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes we are going to end up trying to live prophetically, and it's going to turn out like Vashti. Mm -hmm. Other times we'll live prophetically and it'll turn out like Esther. But either way it goes, like at the end of the day, we have a we have to have a deep enough conviction to believe that the gospel was still worth it, that it was still good news, whether we have to pay the price of crucifixion uh, uh, from the empire or we're able to subvert the empire and actually redirect uh, the outcome in a way that bears witness to the kingdom and advances the kingdom and allows us to sacrificially love our neighbors. So that's, that's a little taste of one of the chapters uh, that, that, that I go into in the book. Well, taste and see that and it see. is good. <laughs> <laughs> Please, Lord, yes, less influences and more witnesses. Um, dear brother, yes. uh, we're not going anywhere. We're about to hang out with uh, the Patreon community who uh, have questions. And uh, uh, dear listener, if if you uh, would like to listen in on that, it, is, it will be up on the Patreon uh, in the next week. Um, but before we leave uh, this time together on the podcast itself, um, how can people enter in uh, more deeply to the work that you're doing? Where, where, where do we find um, uh, what Dominique is up to? Yeah. Um, so one thing is that there is an accompanying small group video-based curriculum for the book. Um, and so I will give that to Drew and Jared for the show notes. Um, but it's a digital download. It's an eight-week curriculum about 20 minutes per session uh, where I really delve into the content in a deeper way and very tangibly connected to present day applications and ways that we're trying to navigate these conversations on the ground. So I'd encourage you to look that up. Um, you can get the book anywhere. Uh, books are sold, all major books. Uh, places like Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, uh, you can go to Zondervan to get it, um, anychristianbooks.com, all those places I have it. Um, and you can follow me on Facebook. My author page is Dominique Du Bois Gilliard. Um, and Instagram, I'm Dominique D, D is in Du Bois Gilliard. So Dominique D Gilliard. And then on Twitter, I'm DD Gilliard. So Dominique Du Bois DD Gilliard. And those are the places you can find me. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.